everybody, you're listening to the Rob Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you are not of legal age where you live, then turn off now until you are. This podcast is about rock bondage. Rock bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find it at the top of our Fat Life page, Rock Podcast. Uh, Fox is a rigger, and Maya is a bottom, and I'm also her dumb, and that's why I like to traumatize her and make Every a mess of the intro to the episode. We have been doing rope together for a few years, and we're very excited to share our passion for it with you from our home in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and today we're excited to have an interview with rope couple Wicked Dave and Clover, um, who've just celebrated their 10th anniversary together, gotten engaged, and opened their beautiful rope space studio, Kokoro. Dave and Clover practice Japanese rope bondage, uh, mostly, which Dave describes on his site as a personal style that honored the aesthetic of... Okay, now I'm going to get all the Japanese names wrong. That's okay. Okay. Honored the aesthetic of the kinbaku of Noeki Chimura and Nakakira while incorporating the strength and technical excellence of Akache Deni. Thank you. This style concentrates on technique in the service of expression and emotional interaction in bondage. And you, you also talked, Dave, about having one foot in the world of semi and the other in the modern world of technical improvement and safety. Thanks for joining us once more to the both of you. Oh, our pleasure. And Hello. thank you for surviving <laughs> through this very long introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for re, um, saying all of those names later on in the episode for us. So if one knows how they're so actually pronounced. So someone knows how to actually pronounce yeah, them. Exactly. Okay. Well, we can try. <laughs> so, Japanese be a danger to myself and others. All right. Uh, well, you always do better than, than us. Yeah, That's definitely. no contest. So can you guys tell us a bit more about all that stuff and what it <laughs> means? And in particular, semi. Um, semi is torture, basically. Mm. That sounds nice. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it's torture rope rather than painful rope. It's rope that is stressful, uh, engenders suffering, surrender. So I think it was um, my friend Ricardo who said that when the models are ready to come down, that's when the semi starts. I don't think that's a good phrase, and it's kind of evocative of the idea of semi as torture rather than as just the infliction of pain in some way. It's not just, here is a horrible thing I'm doing to you to torture you. It's um, torture over time. I think pressure in time would be a good way of expressing it. Yeah, and I think it's more about what's happening inside as well. Mm -hmm. And what's happening on the outside is kind of bringing what's happening on the inside out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like putting somebody into torsion because it's going to affect your breathing, it's going to affect the pressure on your system, yeah. and so on and so forth. It's, it's not necessarily like, here is a painful thing, it's here is a stressful thing, and given some time in it, it will become more stressful, and the person will sink into it more, and psychologically, hopefully, as well as physically. Yeah. And Clover, as a bottom, what does it feel like to be in semi-robe? Uh, I think... Uh... I think probably for everybody it's a little bit different um, and even for me it's been different over the years and from session to session. Um, I think it's like a combination of kind of having that inner turmoil so it can be quite emotional. Um, I think probably for me one of the the deepest sessions we ever had was 
just before your surgery because I didn't know if we were going to have a future. So for me, that one was probably the most potent Mm. because you're acknowledging your fears, you're acknowledging that all all your insecurities um, and desires and you have that moment, I think, like Dave, you've always talked about, like melancholy, Mm. Um, you know, like looking at the cherry blossoms. They're incredibly beautiful, but it's very brief. Mm. And I think that's like, can be like a seven hour session, you know, even if you were to do the exact same thing the next day, it would be very, very different. Um, And it's because it's not really about the rope. It's about the exchange. It's about that interaction. And it's about what you're bringing, what both of you are bringing to that scene. So you could do the same tie 50 times over a year Mm. and each single session would be very different. Some you would be perfectly fine and perfectly happy in and think this is really easy. What's this all about? And then another time because of where you are, um, it could be extremely challenging. Mm. Um, And I think that's some of the beauty of it is that you don't really know what you're going to get. Mm. Um, and it's really up to to what you bring to it that how how it transpires if that makes sense yeah it does <laughs> so when when you talk about emotions in rope then it's not just about um bringing emotions out of the rope it's also the emotional context that the two participants bring to that rope yeah 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 like i think it's not like Oh, like Dave has a magical Kuntu Momo that makes me cry. It's, I mean, he does <laughs> have a magic <laughs> like just pain. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you know, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's much deeper. So it's what you're willing to bring to, you know, that session. Mm. Um, and it could be actually, I don't want to get emotional today and I'm not going to let that happen. Yeah. Um, in which case you'll probably be fine and think that was, you know, fun rope end up but I think if you if you want to kind of go there and you want to bring that to the session you'll get a very different experience Um, and it's really about that intent and it's really what you were saying about um, I like the cherry blossom analogy very much because it's beautiful but it's transient and that's the thing um, with a good session it's a thing that can only happen once it can only happen in this moment and it's really hard to write down like a formula of if you do this and this and this and this phase of the moon at this time and in this way, then this will be the response you'll get. You, you'll never know until you're doing it. You won't find out until you get there. You won't work out, well, that worked great last time, but it, it sucked this time. So now what? You know, okay. So, so there's no magic, magic tools that we can kind of learn to get there, but. For sure, there's kind of uh, training and education and, and building our experience. So how did you guys um, build that up over time? What, what was your uh, initial exposure to education and training and then also within Japanese world? I think within Japanese world, the initial thing was there isn't anything. Um, at the time I started, couldn't find a thing. Um, until um, I saw that Steve came to England uh, doing a couple of private sessions on his way through to Germany, I think. That was like 2009. I think that was, yeah, that was a while ago. And um, that was a big turning point because suddenly you got a big like dump of information from outside of our community. 
and you found that there was lots of things that you'd misinterpreted or just didn't know about or didn't know could be a problem but was. Um, and I went into that probably the best prepared I'd ever gone into anything for learning is that I was absolutely determined not to ask any stupid questions, to observe, to suck as much information out of it as I possibly could. And it changed the way that I tied. And um, then I went home and I rebuilt everything. And then I realized mistakes and I threw everything away and I rebuilt it again. And then I threw everything away and rebuilt it again. And then a year later, I wrote Steve going, ah, I just had to throw everything away and rebuild it again because I just realized what this meant. And it was really um, very life-changing to just have something that makes you rebuild so many times. And that was like one day. One day you did all that with really, really good information. But, uh, and I think people forget that for a long time, the Sardarius style was the only game in Europe. That he was the only person coming over with that stuff at all. There were, you know, there was Dojo in Germany. There's another one in Co. There was one in Copenhagen, and then there was one somewhere else as well. And it was like you went, you went to Steve, where you didn't go to anybody because he was the guy. He was the guy who was living over there. He was the guy who was coming back and showing people, which was fundamentally an extension of the catchy style. Until Kinoko came over. Until Kinoko came over, and um, who else came over? Otto came over. Mm. Um, I think we've been Naku really. Came over. We've I been mean, really lucky at the time yeah. because I think that's when a lot of people started traveling, mm. um, traveling over. Um, yeah. So it was more accessible to us. Yeah, it uh, became suddenly very much more accessible to everybody, not just us. Yeah. yeah. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this podcast and sharing it with you. But your support can really help us pay for the hosting, the equipment and other critical costs. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You'll find ways to buy rope tutorials and gear so we get a small commission from your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, you could also donate to us directly on our Patreon either as a one-off amount or a monthly support that can be as little as the price of a cup of coffee. If you can't afford to do that, that's okay. Just enjoy the podcast and maybe tell a kinky friend or two about it. Now back to today's episode. So while you guys are learning and improving your rope technique, what do you do in order to make your rope as technically safe as possible? Knowledge, really. Um, it's one of the things we do at the studio. We have like a medical professional in to give a lecture on um, anatomy twice a year yeah. nice. so that we keep people uh, up to date on this. And, um, you know, even doctors will tell you like things change over time, their presentation changes over time, the knowledge changes over time. And um, I didn't always know this that, that doctors go for, for like some retraining every single year to keep them up with the very latest information. Yeah. And I think um, I made an impression on us that we wanted to put these things on twice a year so that people could keep getting refreshed on that information and say, like, even if you've been before, keep coming. I think as well having just a realist, realistic kind of approach to it in mm. that there's always something to learn. Like um, when Dave, when you... So basically we learned um, our goatee from... Naka 
um, but I had problems with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when you decided to kind of create your own, which mm-hmm. was technically different to what NACA was teaching, um, but worked for me. And mm-hmm. it wasn't for years. It was a few years we were t- you were tying it on me where I said, this is really, really com- like, I really yes. like this, this TK, this Gote. You should teach it. Um, and it took a long time. And to persuade me, yeah. We, you know, we played with it a lot. We played it with, with it in every like position. We tried to break it, and we spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. And I think even with that, it had four or five different variations until we landed on the one we were happy with. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I think we. It wasn't like we just thought, oh yeah, here's a new tie, let's teach it. No. Um, it took a. I can. I had to convince you for about a year because yeah. you were like you were so worried that if someone used your TK and got an injury that you would feel responsible for it. Yeah. But it's you know similar to you go buy a car and you have an accident with it. It's not the car salesman's fault. It's mm. what people do with that. Yeah. Um, so it took a long time for you to actually start teaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of research. Um, you wrote to a lot of people online mm-hmm. to ask them about anatomy and stuff like that before we actually had a resource like a person to go to yeah. or knew anyone personally. Um, so mm-hmm. you did a lot of research into that. And we yeah. you tied it on different people. So we had like, like friends come over with different body types mm-hmm. and you tied it on different body types. Um, so there was a lot into that. Um, yeah, and people with yeah. different flexibilities and, yeah. And I think as well, again, having that realistic approach in that at the moment, we're not tying very often. Um, so, you know, we have a realistic approach that we'll have to put in a certain amount of practice to get where we need to be. But yeah. thankfully, we really like ropes. So. Yeah, those look you know. <laughs> It is, yeah. You're, you're not always on top of your game and yeah. you, you need to be working at it. And um this was a, a thing I've included in a lot of workshops when I uh, give an example of the importance of practicing as there's um, Nigel Kennedy who's a British violinist. He says, if I don't practice for a day, I can hear it. If I don't practice for three days, the orchestra can hear it. If I don't practice for a week, everybody can hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like, even though he is more sensitive to it than anybody else about how he's playing, he's more sensitive to it even than the orchestra he's playing with. He knows if he doesn't keep up his everyday practice, he's going, you know, his skill is going to degrade. And that's from somebody who is an international concert violinist going, I know I have to stay on top of this because otherwise it's just, you know, you you can't just like turn a tap and expect it to be there. You have to keep working all the time. Interesting. So if one of our listeners was going to Japan for the first time with the goal of learning Japanese style rope, where would you guys advise he starts? That would depend on what style of rope they really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really, really like the NACA stuff, go to NACA. If you really, really like, you know, um, Kazami, go to Kazami. And, and so can you tell us in a few words what would be the difference, for instance, between a Naka style and a Kazami style? I think Naka style is more naturalistic and is more, I'm going to say aesthetic, but aesthetic in the, in, in the way that I like. Because I don't, I don't want to go, Kazami is not aesthetic, I'm going to go, Kazami's got a different aesthetic. And... Um, his tying bears that out. 
you know. Maybe a bit more technical. I think he's a bit more technical, yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's um, TK with all the L-lock frictions in the back. Yeah. It become, it has an incredibly strong stem in the back of it, whereas Macca's is, like, completely stemless. Hmm. And, and will appeal to different and people. It, yeah, and it appeals yeah. to different people, which, it, which is why I say it depends what you really, really like, because... You can look at whether you really like what Kanoko's doing. You can look at what Macca's doing. You can look at, uh, you know, um, what a variety of people are doing and go, well, what, what appeals to you? What's the style that you want? Then contact that person for your lessons in Japan. We would always recommend Nakasan. We would always <laughs> recommend Nakasan. We really like going to Nakasan. Uh, well, we should put Nakasan. Yeah. yeah. Not sound. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And and what's the best way? I mean, you've given um, some some insight there, but what's the best way for those of us outside Japan to gain an understanding into Japanese world? So for the people who might not have the the privilege to travel or even intend attend in person workshops outside Japan, how can people really get to understand it? Mm-hmm. Um. I think there's a lot of writings online now um you know there's uh, like dave has a lot of writing on his website i will when i actually <laughs> finger out and do so yeah <laughs> um but you know there's there's discover kimbaku there's kinky philia um they're based in europe um and they write some really deep amazing articles mm. um I can send you the link if you want to share. Yes, yeah, definitely. We'll put um, all of these in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I okay, mean, so there's a lot of resources. Also, what's some of the good videos? Yeah, there's a lot of videos. There's some stuff that's been uh, directed by Yukimura um, and. Um, there's, uh, is it Kimbaku Today? Kimbaku. Yeah, Kimbaku Today. Yeah. has a lot of videos. It's got um, articles on it as well. Roadflex, that's it. Roadflex, yeah. We'll send you all of these links afterwards. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Because I think one thing is challenging for people. So we're in Thailand and obviously we're a bit more limited in terms of in-person access. And if you're outside some of the main communities, it can be quite hard to sort out the wheat from the chaff, as it were. So the more um, help people can get to know, okay, this is a great source and maybe focus on that rather than some, some other sources is helpful. Um, so you, you guys are obviously both strong uh, students and proponents of Japanese rope bondage. So what do you think people get wrong about Japanese rope bondage in the West? I think it's maybe uh, thinking that it's, you know, the one true way. I think that's something we see quite a bit, like where people go into it thinking, it's the right way to be and actually there's so much you can learn from from different styles mm. um you know like for example even dave's tk is inspired by the akechi tk the asada tk um you know the the technical elements of it but then it has the aesthetics of um uh, nakasan's um, mm. rope so there's so much you can learn um and i think so there's a couple of things. I think it's thinking that that it is the one true way or thinking that people who practice that style of rope believe it's the one true way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not. Yeah. There's loads of, if everyone was doing the same thing, it would be so, it would be boring. You know, it's great that everyone, even people who are doing Japanese style rope have their own interpretations within it. Um, and then the other one is sort of 
mixing styles. So Dave talks, you, you oh, talk yeah. about this. So I'll let you, yeah. it's your thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I'll just add to what you were saying there. It's not just technique. It's how you apply it, and it's, uh, and it's about your relationship. So you can get um, different results with different people, even if, like, you're just changing the partner. Um, and you'll get different different results in a different field because they'll have a different relationship and they'll have a different kind of interaction. Um, the thing with the Japanese styles is that well, some of them are actually a little mutually exclusive on technique-wise, that you'll see people tie, for example, uh, a Nakatike, and then they'll do a side attachment on it, uh, a la Rikechi, and you'll never see Naka do that. Hmm. Because it's not physically designed to be suspended just off the side. It's supposed to be suspended from the center of the back. So you so need to have an understanding of why things are designed the way they are. aren't used together. But if you look at Naka's technique, it's entirely internally consistent with itself. Mm. And everything matches up. If you look at Ketchy's technique, all of his stuff matched up with itself. But he had completely different structure in his TKs, and he liked doing some of suspensions. And also from a bottoms perspective, mm. if you're tied in an Akechi TK with your arms parallel behind your back, and you do like a um, mm. seminar with it, um, you you're going you most likely will run into problems um, with the forearms. With, yeah, with yeah. your forearms because it's not really designed for that. So mm -hmm. it's better with the the, yeah. the high hands because you know your hands can then scissor. Yeah. Um, whereas you can't do that with a parallel hand. So it's kind of like understanding the stuff, understanding the bondage and what it's meant for. Yeah. Um, and absolutely, you can kind of play with that, but just understanding each style's strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. There yeah. are, you're absolutely right. There are things you can't do with the Nikechi yeah. style square box tie that you can do with the Naka one. There are things you can't do with the Naka one that you can yeah. do with the Akechi one. And which way you're going with the style is a personal personality decision. It's about what appeals to you. It's yeah. not really about this is technically better than this. Though there are technical arguments to be made as well, it, it really is about what you want to do. But yeah. where there are technical problems, there's nothing to stop you from actually doing something about that. And like the Akechi style TK is really quite strong and robust mm. and is really good for kind of like multiple transitions from lots of different angles. And as a bottom in that, you'll feel quite supported and quite safe. Um, whereas um, the Naka style uh Gote, um, you won't feel that same support from from the the TK. Mm. Um, so it's just knowing really what strengths and weaknesses are of each style. You can mm. absolutely do that, but just be aware that you could run into problems. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's much more of a beginner thing to mix the styles yeah. indiscriminately because you don't when you're a beginner, them. you don't understand yeah. them. And so instead of having a coherent rope system, you're taking bits and pieces and making a Frankenstein creature, which doesn't quite work as well, is what I'm hearing. I think that's entirely yeah. counterproductive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like that, it could be when you're beginning, you're just picking up little bits of information here and there, yeah. which is really normal. Um, and then kind of piecing them all together. And like you say, you yeah. end up with a kind of a Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you end up with what we call conference rope. But people have only been to conferences and they've had like an hour sampler of this, an hour sampler of that, an hour sampler of that. Mm -hmm. 
and mm -hmm. one of them was like how to do a TK, the other one's how to do a leg tie, and the other one's how to do a suspension line. And they've come from three different people who don't know each other, tie in different styles, and use different techniques, and go like, well, how does this all fit together? So that person who's been to their first conference, they don't know how it's right or how it's wrong. It's something that it's an understanding that they're only going to get when they've got more depth of information. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you talk about a, a lot about emotions in rope, which is a topic we find uh, fascinating and, and core to how we do rope as well. And Dave, you've talked about how Kimbaku is a world of intense emotion and sensation. So Dave, how do you bring out intense emotions in your play partners when you're doing rope? Awesome. It's like a straightforward and a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> we like those. <laughs> rope is the one. Uh, because it depends on the person and, um, again, I'm going to have to say you've got to get to know them and they've got to have confidence in you and you have to feel in control and able to proceed in a controlled manner with them. You've got to know what you're doing and, you know, you have to have that confidence that inspires confidence in them. So they can let go and give you a genuine reaction. And when they're giving you a genuine reaction, you know what's really working from, for them, which may be over above or very slightly different to um, what you've even talked about, or it might just be giving you a better understanding of what they've talked about. Okay, so so make it um, really know it. Make it tangible for people. Can you give us a concrete, obviously without specific person, talking about them but can you give us a concrete example of like what does that actually look like so I think for people this is the kind of thing where it feels very black box and part of that is because it's very person-centric but if you kind of can talk through an example that might help people I think um a point is that one we made earlier and those intense emotions usually will come out with those people who you tie with who want to bring that to the table yeah mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah it's got to be mutual and that mutual confidence and that mutual trust yeah because and i think the, the most intense sessions we've had have been with people we have friendships with yeah and yeah i'd completely yeah. agree yeah and when they get to that point where they feel that they can let go with you and yeah. be their genuine selves then you get let in. You get to not not take advantage. Um, you get to use that. You get to use the opportunity to know what's working for them emotionally, to see their genuine responses, and you know you can you can really easily see what's working and what's not working with somebody. And when you see something that's really working. Then you go with that and you, and you maybe push that further or you go, that's not the direction I want to go in. I want to pull that. I want to rein that in and turn in another direction. And it, I'm finding it incredibly hard to like describe it because it's a process that's happening in the moment. And it, it's like saying, now look back on something that happened once in your lifetime and describe the way it happened the way it happened. <laughs> and I can't necessarily give you. Um, a really, really good description of why everything happened the way it did. As someone who's observed some very great sessions of you with other people mm -hmm. and also some not so great ones, mm -hmm. I think the difference between them is that <laughs> one, 
those people will bring that to the table so that they kind of want the session to go that way. And the other is probably their trust in themselves and their trust in you and also your trust in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, like sometimes I think the better sessions are when you're kind of, you don't really have an idea. Yeah. And usually if someone comes to you saying, I really want to do this amazing leg lacing position or I really mm. want to do this futumamo or something like that, that already is a blocker. You're kind mm. of like stuck in this mindset. Yeah. And I think when we don't plan something or when you don't plan something, you're much more fluid. Yes. And it's it's no longer about that because no matter what, you can't remove that from your head. You're mm. thinking that this person has an expectation. And mm. I think it's when those expectations are left and you're just focusing on tying that person mm. and making that person feel whatever it is they want to feel yeah. and that you're bought into that as well, that you also want to feel that. I think they're the better sessions and mm. um, just from observing you. Yeah. Um, and I also, cause I always worry that people might think I'm like shooting daggers at the back of their head. <laughs> I dare you be tying with my fiance. Um, but actually all the people we tie with, I'm like, usually I'm attracted to them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Shooting, you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like we're talking constantly during our photo yeah. shoots, constant communication. Um, but we're completely silent, so we yeah. just we read each we're other, or we'll have yeah, yeah. we'll gesture. Um, so because that that person who's come to us, you know, it's about them. Mm. You know, they're they're the important thing, and we want to be. We wouldn't I want to make them. I want to make really good photos of them. I want to show mm. them actually what we're seeing. And you do. And well, I try to. <laughs> yeah, and you want to bring that out of yeah, them. You want do. to bring that out in them with the ropes and yeah. with your interaction with them. Mm. Um, so I spend a lot of time at the beginning making people feel at ease with that. And mm. that, you know, the, the more they want to let go in the shoot, that's actually better mm. um, rather than feeling that they have to hide some of their emotions because... Clover might kill them. That's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I spend a lot of time reassuring people, you know, just to be themselves and not to worry and, you know, just to have fun, really, because, mm. you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So, guys, when we were preparing our episodes about Ichinawa, so um, rope with a single uh, length of rope, we did a little bit of investigative journalism and, um, well, Dave, your name came up a lot. Like, a lot of people pointed the finger to you as the person who introduced that to them. In a so, good way. In a good way, obviously. <laughs> But we, we started to get the suspicion that you had a lot to do with uh, introducing Ichinawa in the West. So could you talk to us a bit about how you guys discovered Ichinawa in the first place and why you liked it and why you brought it to so many other people? I think initially what, what we like about it is that it's um, a useful Uh, fun thing that you yeah. can do without needing a whole lot of skill mm. it also shows people that they don't need to suspend to have fun and to actually if you if you're if you're struggling with Ichinawa I think you're going to struggle with pretty much everything else yeah um, I would agree so with it's, that. A, it's a really good exercise yeah. to do and I, I hate calling it an exercise because it's more than that yeah. but it's a really good thing to do a together yeah, yeah to actually work on your interaction and and see what you can bring to the table with just one rope yeah before um, you add more it's like a limitation but also freeing because it 
takes away the need to tie a pattern. It takes away the need to follow a set process. It takes away the need to have a defined endpoint. If you're tying um, to Gote, you've got a beginning, you've got a middle, you've got an end when you've tied everything off, and there you go. The Gote is complete. That was a whole process. With uh, Ichinawa, the whole session can just go on, you know, um, I don't want to say ad nauseum, but you know, it, it can go on for an indefinite amount of time. It can be a few seconds, it can be a few minutes, you can go as long as you like. And the thing is that um, it's made as simple as possible to remove limitations from you and you just have to work with the body and the response of the person that you're tying and controlling tension and moving the rope. And those are such fundamental skills of rope bondage. I don't think you can go wrong with it, but it's also such a, a pleasurable process in itself because it's freeing your mind. You're not thinking, how do I tie? You are not thinking, how do I perform this friction? You are not thinking, how do I get from here to here? You're just tying in the moment. And I always make uh, a point to people, like, don't think of tying and untying. It's all tying. You're moving the rope. Mm. That's all part of tying. I think there's a disconnect in people's heads where they go, tying is one thing, untying is a different thing. And you've got to think of it all as being just as important. And I think Ichinawa is really, really great at teaching people that because it's moving the rope in every direction. It's just as important. There, there is no like, well, it matters going this way, but this way doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. Because, because I like that a lot. Yeah. And it shifts that perception from it being about the rope. Because I think a lot of the time when you're a beginner, naturally, you're trying to learn a new skill, so it starts yeah. to become about the rope rather than the person that you're you're tying with. So I think Itchy now then allows you to do something really simple yes. um, and focus on the person r- rather than action or the skill. Yeah. And it gives. I think sometimes when people are learning, they mm-hmm. they get really frustrated early on because they might be struggling with something, and actually it can be a really powerful exercise to get people to do because it then reminds them why they probably got into it in the first place. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, yeah, it's it's not actually about the rope. Yeah, and I, I want to go with that a, a little bit more about, um, because you, you're saying with beginners, and I think what you're saying is absolutely valid, but I'm also, I'd say, with people who are experienced, yeah. people who have learned and learned and learned and learned, and they've learned technique after technique and tie after tie, and if they've never done it before and you teach it to them, then suddenly they're doing something that has separated from the, if you like, the security blanket of, I know how to do this, 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 and this, and has just left them with the person and they've just got to honestly interact with them. And that can be transformative for people and that is amazingly pleasurable to see. Yeah. That people have reconnected with a, uh, with a real fundamental of rope bondage. Yeah, definitely. So I do love that. Beautiful. Thank you guys so much for talking with us again today. And it's been really, really interesting. Uh, that will be all from us today at the Rope Podcast. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And come friend us on our Fat Life page, Rope Podcast. And if you like this episode and you would like to help us make more of them, please consider supporting us on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. <laughs>